you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus is in the New Testament toward the back. There are those five books that all start with the letter T, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus. If you get to Philemon or Hebrews or James, you've gone too far. We're in Titus chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series on the book of Titus. If you were with us as we looked at Titus 1, or if you were not, uh, let me get you caught up. We said as we looked at Titus 1 that there is a lot of talk in our day about misinformation or disinformation. There's a lot of talk about conspiracy theories and fake news and lies that are intended to manipulate or mislead people. And we said that Paul left, uh, left Titus on the island of Crete to straighten out a similar problem. People were deceiving others. They were ruining whole households. They were teaching what they ought not to teach for dishonest gain. And we saw last week that they were following the spirit of the age instead of the revelation of God. And they were trading that revelation of God for the ideas of men. And we said, wow, that's really similar to the concerns that we have in our day. And so we asked the question, what is Paul's answer to that situation? What does the Bible say that the church should do in a situation like that one, like the one that Titus was in, very similar to the one that we are in? And we saw in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5 that Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every town to oversee churches. And the elders were to teach the people of God the word of God. And then the people of God were to teach one another. So we saw that God's answer for misinformation and disinformation, for lies intended to mislead and manipulate, God's answer is Bible teaching churches overseen by elders. And when we said that last week, there were some amens from over in the second. I appreciated that. That was really good. Yes, that is God's answer. There would be churches that teach the Bible. But that Bible is a pretty big book. What in particular are we supposed to teach? What is it that God would want his people to know in a culture like the one on Crete, in a culture like the one we live in today? What is it we're supposed to teach? And in Titus chapter 2, Paul unflurls more of this plan that he has for the church and who is supposed to teach and what they're supposed to teach. So that's what we commonly we look at today as we come to Titus chapter 2. And you see in that first verse, Titus 2 and verse 1, Paul instructs Titus and he says, You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Now we've seen that word before, sound doctrine. It was in Titus chapter 1 when we looked at the qualifications for elders. Paul uses it in other places in the pastoral epistles. And when we've seen this word before, sound doctrine, this phrase... Paul has defined it before to include the teaching of Jesus, those words of Jesus, and the words and the teachings of those who Jesus taught, his apostles. So we're talking about the apostolic teaching. So when Jesus says in the Great Commission, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. That's, that's part of this. The apostles' teaching that we saw last week in Acts 2 and verse 42, that's what, what Titus is to teach, he's to teach sound doctrine and what is in accord with that, what's consistent with that. Well, what would be in accord with sound teaching? 
Well, God is so good. He has preserved this letter. And we can see. And what Paul does now is he instructs Titus what to teach different groups within the church. We're going to see that he says teach the older men this. And teach the older women this. And teach the younger women this. And teach the younger men this. And so I just want to walk through with you. And I want you to hear what God would have his people in the church here, how they're to be instructed on how we are to live our lives. And then when we get to the second part of this chapter, Paul tells why. He gives us the empowerment. We've already been singing about it this morning, and that love constrains to obedience. Paul will get to the power that God gives us to live in the way he calls us to live. So let's look at those two things together. First, What is it we're supposed to teach? How are people supposed to live in this world we live in? And beginning in verse 2, Paul instructs Titus, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, okay, the older men, like, does that count me or is that somebody else? Where do you draw the line here? Well, he's probably talking about more mature people, right? The lifespan here on Crete in the first century is very different than our lifespan today. Uh, But this word that he uses here um, tends to refer to men who are roughly 40 and up, right? So he's considering 20s and 30s to be young men, 40s and up as the older men. So that's generally what Paul is saying. And what does he say? He says, teach the older men. It's interesting to me, the first thing he says is teach them to be temperate. We don't use that word a whole lot. Is it got something to do with your temper? It has temper in there. No, it's not specifically about your temper. If there's a climate that you study, weather, and you say it has temperate climate, it means it never gets real hot or it never gets real cold, right? It's just sort of a mild, in the middle, temperate climate. And what this word means when it describes people is that we're to be calm people, We're to be reasonable people. We're to be people who don't go to any of the extremes, right? That we're not real hot or real cold. That we tend to be consistently calm and reasonable. Whew, man, I got this far in and I started thinking, man, do we teach men to be temperate? Is that something that we're teaching men to do? And and I'm not sure that that's the case, that we teach men to be reasonable and not go to extremes. In fact, sometimes in the church, we want to incite men to fanaticism sometimes. Men, I need to ask you, what is it that you are taking in? What is it that you are being taught? I want to ask you to be critical about that. Because as I looked at this and thought about it, I was thinking many of the things that I take in in the news that I read, the things they really drive me either to anger or anxiety, one of the two right? That I'm so mad something's going on in the world, or I'm so anxious that things seem to be so out of control. And listen, there's a place for responding in a righteous anger to what's going on in the world. But, but Paul is telling Titus, listen, you may be angry, but I want you to teach the older men, the ones that should be the leaders in the church, to be temperate, not going to extremes, not hot or cold. But to be grounded, to be calm, to be reasonable. If you want an opportunity, men, 
to think this way and to be taught this way. I've got to tell you about this summer book study that we're doing. We're going to read together Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers, and it's going to be a a great study. This is exactly the kind of thing that a church should be teaching and reading together in order to teach the older men to be temperate. Paul goes on. He says you should teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. Let's just stop those. Worthy of respect, self-controlled. If we only read what you post on social media, would we say, here's a man who's worthy of respect and self-controlled? Ouch, that one hurt, didn't it? Let's be men of God who are temperate, who are worthy of respect in all aspects of our lives, who are self-controlled, which we'll talk about more in a moment, and then Paul says you need to teach them to be sound, to be healthy, to be solid in three areas. You ready, men? Take some inventory here. He says teach them to be sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, what does he mean by that? When he says sound in the faith, he's talking about he needs to be solid in his relationship with God. He needs to have this vertical relationship. He needs to be healthy. That's what the word actually means, sound. It refers to physical health. But he needs to be, be healthy in his faith. He needs to have a healthy faith that he's putting his trust in the right things and not putting his trust in the wrong things. To teach the older men to be sound in their faith. And then second, to be sound in love, to be sound, to be healthy in their relationships with other people. Whereas sound in the faith is more of a a vertical, me and God. The second thing, sound in love, is more of a horizontal. In my relationships, teach the men to be healthy, to have healthy relationships, to have sound, solid relationships. So they're to be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in endurance. Does that mean you need to be able to run a long way? Well, I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think he's saying sound and endurance that you should be able to trust God and able to serve others for the long haul. That you should be consistent in it. It's not start and stop. That when we grow to maturity, that we develop a faith and a love that we can sustain, that continues over the course of of time. That's what he asks us to teach the older men. Verse 3, he turns to older women. He says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women. And I'll get to the younger women in a minute, but let's talk about the older women for a moment. He says, We should teach them to be reverent. This is such an interesting word. Reverent. Does that mean you're just real quiet and in prayer all the time? That you don't really say anything? Or if you do, it's in a hushed tone? No, no, no. That's not what we mean by reverent. This word reverent is a word that is used of priests who live in the temple, who are there before the very presence of God at all times. 
So what Paul is saying to Titus is he's saying, teach the older women to live their lives in such a way that they're always living life before the face of God. That they're to lean into the world as those who know God is there, that his presence is there, that he is not far away. That he sees all. That he provides all that we need, that all that we have comes from his hand. That the older women would live their lives always as before the very face of God. They're to be reverent in the way that they live. Not to be slanderers. That means you don't say false things that damage people. You should have control over your tongue. They're not to be addicted to much wine. That substances should not control them. That they should not let their, their tongue should be controlled. But the fact that they're always living before the face of God is what should be the controlling things over their lives. Then, verse 5, they can train the younger women. I don't know if that strikes you as odd or funny. Probably not in our day. Most of the teachers I had growing up in school were women. You need to know in first century Crete... <laughs> For a guy to say, look, our plan to stop misinformation is to have women teach. We don't really react to that. In this day, people would be like, what? Your plan is to have we, these older women teach? Are you crazy? Women were looked down on. By and large, they were not as educated. And so it's revolutionary for the Apostle Paul to say, hey, part of God's plan for the church for heading off misinformation, for correcting what is wrong, is to have the older women who lean into the world like they're always before the face of God, to have them teach. Mature women, I, I want to I speak to you for a moment. We need you to teach in this place. There is a, a place for you to teach and to pass on the things that you have learned from God and your experience in walking with Him. We need you to teach here. I want you to hear that very clearly. I would love, if you, if you want to teach, you know, come to me after the service. I'll be at the back door. Becky Williams, talk with her. She's the head of our, director of our women's ministries here. Please let us know if you feel that calling or if it's something that you feel led to do because we want to follow God's plan of having mature women teach. Now, who is it that they teach? Well, certainly, they should be involved in teaching those in their family, their own children, their grandchildren. But the text goes on to say they should also train the younger women. Okay, what do they train them? Verse 4, they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. It's the second time we've heard that, right? We heard that of older men. And pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Let's unpack that a little bit. What are they supposed to train the younger women? Well, first, they're supposed to train them to love their husbands and love their children. You may think, well, they got to be trained to do that. Don't the younger women just kind of do that automatically? And it's easy for us to think that way. Again, we're 21st century Americans, most of us. And in first century Crete, you need to understand that these younger women are married to a man that they probably did not choose on their own. A man who was chosen by their family. 
their loving their children well probably came a little bit easier to them. But to train the younger women to love their husbands, yes, we have to be trained to love. Because love involves service, and it involves sacrifice. And we don't don't always have accurate ideas about what love is. But to love their husbands well, these are families that would stand out in a Greco-Roman culture if there was a woman who loved her children and her husband well. In fact, he even contemplates that. He says, right, if they do this, then people won't malign the word of God. These are people who will stand out and be different than the world around them. That the younger women should be trained to love their husbands, to, to be self-controlled. We'll talk about that in a minute, but he keeps coming back to that topic. They're to be trained to be pure, to be busy at home. Some translations here, if you have the ESV, I think it says working at home. And people look at this verse and say, women ought to just be in the home and not be working outside the home. Listen, you may live in a culture where that's the view that women should not work outside the home. I want you to understand that is not a biblical view, okay? Read Proverbs 31, right? That woman there is busy at home, but she's also considering a field and buying it. She's using the proceeds, the profits that she makes from trading to have a vineyard, to plant a vineyard. To grow grapes in this vineyard and then to be profitable. It specifically says she should be profitable in her trading. All that. I mean, do you think she's selling the grapes to her kids? I mean, yes, Proverbs 31 describes a woman who's busy at home, but it also describes a woman who is very busy outside the workplace. This is not saying women should remain at home. Listen, if you have made the choice to stay at home to raise kids, that is a noble choice. We've made that choice. If you're able to do that, that's awesome. But let's not look down on women who are also busy outside the home because that can be a godly choice as well. Read Proverbs 31. So what's Paul talking about here if they're supposed to be busy at home? If it's not a prohibition of working outside the home, then what is this? Well, if you read 1 Timothy 5, Paul is concerned when he writes to Timothy on the island of Ephesus that there are a bunch of young widows there. And they're not being busy in their own home But they're going from house to house gossiping. They're not busy in their own home. They're busy bodies getting into other people's business. It's not that they have jobs outside the home. It's that they're getting into other folks' business outside the home, getting involved in other homes. So I think what Paul is saying here is he's saying be busy at your own house and don't be a busy body in somebody else's house. You take care of the things at your house, and yes, be involved in things outside your house to the extent that you are able, but not in other people's homes, being gossips, being busybodies. He goes on and says to train the women to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. To be subject to their husbands it means to respect their authority. To work together with him. A lot of times in this day, marriage looks like you married someone, of course, to improve your standing if you could, to gain more stuff if you could, and your wife had your children and sort of managed your home. But then your relationships, you would play outside the home, right? Adultery was rampant at this time. 
Most people had somebody outside the home that they actually had a, a physical sexual relationship with a romantic relationship with, and wives were just not seen in that way. And this is saying, look, be subject to your husband, respect his authority, work together as a team. Work together so that the ways you complement one another leads people to admire God's plan for marriage, right? To not be on separate teams with him mostly outside the home, with you mostly inside the home, and, and never the tween shall meet. But to work together so that people will admire instead of maligning the word of God. Younger women, I want to ask you. This says that you learn these things and you get better at these things because older women train you to do this. That's God's plan for the church. So let me ask you, if you're a younger woman, you're in, in this stage of life, is there a woman who's a little further down the road than you are, who you are opening yourself up to for correction? You're opening yourself up to them so that they can train you, so that they can speak into your life an important thing within the church, within the people of God, for younger women to be open to older women speaking, and older women for you to be pouring into someone who is not as far down the road as you are. May God do that in this place. He goes on. He says, here's what you're to teach the younger men. Look at verses 6 through 8. Similarly, encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. We've heard that three times, haven't we? In everything, Titus, he's speaking to, set them an example by doing what is good, and your teachings show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This is fascinating to me that there in verse 6, he's saying, encourage the young men to be self controlled. He keeps using that, right? He said that to tell the, teach the older men that in verse 2. He said the older women should teach the younger women that. Further up there in verse 4 or 5. Now he's saying teach the younger men to be self-controlled. He's going to say it again that grace teaches us that down in verse 12. He has said that's a, a requirement to be an elder in chapter 1. He keeps using the same phrase, self-controlled. Why do you think he keeps telling Titus to teach everybody to be self-controlled? Why does he keep saying that? Probably because we don't have a tendency to be very self-controlled, right? Now listen, I want you to be very careful about what you hear when you read self-control. As 21st century Americans, we tend to think, I need to organize my life better. I need to be more disciplined. I need a life coach. And that may be true of you. Those things may be true. That's not primarily what Paul is talking about here. Remember when he writes about self-control, what does he say about it in Galatians 5 in verse 22? That self-control is not something you do to control your life better. But in Galatians 5, he says self-control, if that's something you want, that's a, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And self-control is the last one. So if you want to be self-controlled, if we as a church want to teach people to be self-controlled the way Paul is talking about it, then we've got to teach people to be dependent on the Spirit of God. 
He's saying that the Spirit of God needs to control you more than anything else, more than your pride, more than your anger, more than wine, more than riches, more than the reputation that people have or what everybody's saying in the culture. That you need to self-control means being controlled by the Spirit of God. That His Spirit is growing that fruit in us. If you're not very self-controlled, you can try to manage life better. You probably should. Good luck with that. But what Paul is saying is you need to be more dependent on the Spirit of God. You need to go to God and say, I can't be more self-controlled. I've tried. I need your Spirit to come and grow that fruit in me. Lord, help me connect to the Spirit. How do we get more connected to the Spirit? The Spirit loves to use the Word. The Spirit loves to use prayer. The Spirit loves to use the, the sacraments, the things that we do when we gather together. The Spirit tends to use, the Spirit ordinarily uses those things to shape us and to mold us. So when you hear self-control, I don't want you to think uh, self-help. I want you to think Spirit help. Spirit come help me. I need the Holy Spirit more. Because that's what Paul is talking about. Here. Notice when he's instructing Titus, he's saying, teach them these things and be an example to them. Do you hear that? He's saying the way these things go forward in the church, it's a verbal thing that you teach, but it's also a visual thing that you live out, that they see in you. They hear you teach these things, but then they also see you living these things. Life in the church is verbal and visual. Our walk must match our talk. Well, I can't do that perfectly. That's fine. But when your walk doesn't match your talk, leaders are people who confess, even to other people, confess and repent and model that confession and repentance. Please forgive me. I'm not giving you the visual that is consistent with the verbal I've been giving you. That's wrong. I also want you to see me confess that and, and turn back. Life in the church is visual, it's verbal, it's an example, and it's the teaching that comes in words. Verses 9 and 10, I don't have nearly enough time to deal with this. Because he says, teach the slaves, and as soon as you say that, there are people in our culture that says, Whoa, why would you be teaching slaves? Why doesn't Paul come out here and say, slavery is wrong, it should be ended immediately? Well, probably because the slaves he's addressing don't really control that. They don't really make that call, right? There are slaves that have become members of this church. And that's primarily not what he's writing about. And listen, I understand people have used the Bible to justify slavery in the past. So let me be very clear here about a couple of things you should know. Number one. There are some differences between what we abolished in the United States in the 19th century and what was going on in the first century Greco-Roman Empire. There are some differences, okay? There's some similarities. Read the Wikipedia entry on the Bible and slavery. There is one. There's a, it's, a, it's a pretty good Old Testament and New Testament thing. But you'll learn when you read that that some slavery was not involuntary like we had in our country. It was voluntary. That some people actually sold themselves into slavery. In fact, it was a form of, of an internship. You've lived that, haven't you? Awesome. 
If you're a doctor and you've done a residency, that's pretty close to what some of this slavery was in the day, right? You sold yourself to somebody and they owned you to learn a trade. So sometimes it was a voluntary thing. Now, there were involuntary slaves, prisoners of war, but some of the 50 million slaves in the Roman Empire, it was a voluntary thing. And a lot of times it was not a permanent arrangement. That somebody sold themselves into somebody else's service for a year or for two years. Or in the Old Testament, it always ended after seven years. There were some permanent slaves, mostly prisoners of war. But just know, when we're talking about slavery in the New Testament, there are gradations of it. Just It's not exactly maybe what you first think of when you think of slavery. So just know that, first of all. And second, I want you to know... That Paul does condemn slave trading, which is probably more what you're thinking of when you think of slavery. You can read about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, down in verses 9 and 10, Paul does call slave trading inconsistent with sound doctrine, which we've already learned are the words of Jesus in the teaching of the apostles. He said slave trading is inconsistent with what Jesus has said and what Jesus' followers have taught. And Paul characterizes slave trade, those who would trade people, as ungodly and sinful, as unholy and irreligious. And he puts slave trading in the same category as those who are murderers and adulterers and liars. So let me be clear. The teaching of the Bible is that slavery is wrong, it's degrading, it's a violation of the personhood of all people who are made in the image of God, and it's wrong for one person to own another person and deny them their God-given freedom. And the Bible is clear about that, and the Apostle Paul says that it's inconsistent with what Jesus and the Apostles taught. 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, you can go and read about it. But critiquing the institution of slavery is not Paul's purpose here in Titus. What's he doing? He's saying there's incorrect teaching on the island of Crete. And so you need to appoint elders to establish churches to teach different groups of people who are in the church how they should live in the culture. And here's what you tell older men and younger men and older women and younger women. And evidently there's some slaves in the church. Now think about that. Christianity recognized that all people are made in the image of God. <laughs> that means somebody evangelized a slave who other people would see as property. That slaves have been welcomed into the church on the island of Crete. And here they are in the church. And so what would we advise them? Not about the institution of slavery, Paul talks about that in 1 Timothy 1. How do we tell them to live in this situation in which they find themselves? That's what he's writing about, and here's what he says. He says in verse 9, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Attractive to whom, do you think? Well, certainly other slaves, people who are watching in the culture. But most of the instruction is directed toward how the slaves are re to react to their, their masters. He's saying even to slaves, you should live your life in a way that would draw your masters to faith in Christ. That they would become 
brothers and sisters in Christ. Read Philemon. That's the way Paul talks about slaves and masters who are both Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, Paul has referred several times to the effects that our conduct can have on people who are not Christians. So notice, make a note here. We've seen in verse 5, right? That you should be subject to your husband so that no one will malign the word of God. Or so that those who oppose you, verse 8, may not be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Or here in verse 10, so that in every way you make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Paul is saying to the people in the church that the way we live our lives can commend or discredit the gospel to the people around us. That's one reason we should live the way God calls us to live because it brings glory to God and attracts others to the faith. But that's not the only reason. I would submit it's not the main reason. And Paul turns now to that other thing that we talked about, that he has been talking about what to do, and now he's going to turn and talk about what to know. He's been talking about duty, now he's going to turn and talk about doctrine. Notice that these things go together, they're related to one another, right? That what is true doctrine should drive what we do. Our duty, right? That what is true, the things that we learn, the sound doctrine, should affect what we do. It should drive, it empowers what we do. Let me show you how that happens. Verse 11, Paul writes, for, now why is he saying for? Because he's saying this is connected to the instructions for living that I just gave you. Even though it's doctrine, it's not telling you what to do. It's telling you something that's true, but this is what empowers you. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. There's the word again. Upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, if you think the Bible never refers to Jesus as God, wow. Great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's Titus 2 and verse 13. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So why is Paul saying they should live life and lean into the world the way that they do? What is it that empowers them? He says there are these two appearings that happen. Both of them bring salvation. Verse 11, he says there's an appearing of grace that's happened in the past. Right, The grace of God has appeared, he says. And then in the future, there's going to be this glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus. So there's a, a future appearing and a past appearing that should influence the way that we live our lives in the present. We live between these two appearings, between the appearing of grace in our past, the appearing and the return of Christ in the future. And as we see the one in the past and look forward to the one in the future, it changes the way we live in the present. How does it change it? Well, the one from the past, it tells us that grace saves us, but that grace also teaches us. Well, what does grace teach us? Well, negatively, grace teaches us 
to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And positively, grace teaches us to be self-controlled. Remember, you're hearing spirit-controlled, right? Connected to the spirit. Positively, grace teaches us to be self-controlled, upright, and live godly lives in the present age. So the grace in the past is supposed to influence us at this present time. Now, some people look at the grace of God, and they say, listen, God's so gracious, he forgives people who don't deserve it. But sometimes we say, hey, this is a really good arrangement. God loves to forgive sin, and I love to sin. So this is a great arrangement. I can just keep going in my life the way that it's been going, and God will keep forgiving me because he's gracious and he's merciful. And if you read the book of Jude, it says that that's turning the grace of God into a license to sin, which is condemned. And this, Paul is saying here, that grace actually teaches us to live differently. How is that the case? Well, as we see what God has done for us, for people who did not deserve it, it says in verse 14 that he gave himself, that Jesus, that God loved the world so much that he gave his son, that Jesus was willing to come and die for us and to give of himself. And when we see that, that would lead us to give of ourselves, to not be so controlled by self. I think the clearest place Paul writes about is in 2 Corinthians 5. If you were with us in the men's Bible study Wednesday night, we looked at this passage. Remember 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. If you have the ESV, it says that Christ's love controls us. How? Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died and was raised again. You hear what Paul's saying? He's saying that when we look at the grace that has been shown for us, that when we didn't deserve it, we were God's enemies, Jesus was willing to leave the perfection of heaven where he was worshipped and adored, and people did what he said to do. And he was willing to come here to the earth to be mistreated and misunderstood and to die the death that we deserved in our place, taking the punishment for our sin. That when we see Jesus was willing to give of himself in that way, that that love of Christ for us compels us. It's a compelling love. That his love controls us. That if Jesus gave himself in that way for me, then I just can't live my life any way that I want to. I must live in a way that brings glory and honor to the one who did so much for me. That's how it empowers us to live our lives differently. Let me just ask you, do you say no to ungodliness and worldly passions? Is that something that you do? And when you struggle to say no to ungodliness and no to worldly passions, do you look to the grace of God to empower you? It'll teach you. It's compelling. Christ's love will control your heart. But it's got to be in there. You've got to be thinking about it, meditating on it, focusing on it. Grace teaches, but do we learn? Are we listening? Put yourself in a place where you're tasting the grace of God often, and it'll teach you to say no to ungodliness.
There's another appearing here. It talks about Jesus coming in the future. I'll close with this. How does this future Jesus coming back, how does that help us to live our lives in the present? Well, what's Jesus going to do when he comes back? He's going to finish what he started. What did he start when he came? He started making all things new. You understand that the purpose of Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection was not only to save you from your sin. Yes, we are forgiven our sins. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. But the writer to Colossians says he did those things to redeem all things, to make all things new is what we sing at Christmas when we say that he's making things new as far as the curse is found. That Jesus has started this process of making all things new and since he's started making all things new since he's begun the work of restoring his kingdom and because the day is coming that he will come and finish making all things new then in between those two times he has purified for himself a people who are eager to do what is good as his people we see his kingdom beginning to break in as the brokenness we see the brokenness beginning to be pushed back and it makes us want the kingdom of God to come more and more he taught us to pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's a desire that we begin to have. And so we begin to work for the kingdom of God to come now at the present time because we know it is good. It's good for our families. We know it's good for our own lives. We know it's good for our communities and that it ultimately brings glory to God. And so we do work now and we keep working now even when it's hard because we know Jesus will return to finish what he has started and as his kingdom comes now through his people doing good, then do good. Teach one another to do what is good so that his kingdom may come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we do what is good, may we be empowered by looking to the grace that he has shown us in the past. And by looking forward to the work that he will complete in the future, may that empower us and enable us to live the way that he calls us to live. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's amazing that you speak so clearly to where we are at this point in time. Thank you. Thank you for preserving this letter. Thank you for speaking to us so clearly. Help us to live these things out. Father, we can't do these things on our own. We'll mess them up. We pray that you would come now by your spirit and that, Holy Spirit, you would convict us of sin, that we might turn back to the living God, that we would look for you to do the work that only you can do, that you would grow your fruit in us for the good of our homes and our hearts and our communities and for the glory of God. Please come and do that, for it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.